Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton, and today Jonesy and I are interviewing BJ Fogg. BJ Fogg is the author of Tiny Habits. He's one of the masters, one of the godfathers of behavior, behavior change, habits, habit change. And uh, you can find more about him and his books at bjfogg.com. That's bjfogg.com. In this episode, we talk about the three elements that need to come together to make a behavior. We talk about installing new habits. We talk about unwinding bad habits. We talk a little bit about how he featured in the Netflix doco, The Social Dilemma, and all about his book, Tiny Habits. Enjoy. BJ Fogg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we've been reading books for, for the last four and a half years on the podcast and we've done mini habits, we've done atomic habits, we've done the power of habit and now we've done tiny habits and personally, I think it was probably the best of the lot. I really loved it. So firstly, mm. thanks so much for that book. I really enjoyed it. And just to ease us in, I guess, what are, what are habits and why do they matter? Wow. Habits are things we do quite automatically without thinking or making decisions. And they matter because, wow, it really, so much of our life is these habits. And we can design our life to be better by designing appropriate habits, or we can just let uh, habits form on their own and maybe get where we want, but probably not. Habits really determine, uh, in some ways, whether we re- achieve our full potential. Mm. We might like to start with the fog behavior model. We did do a full 25-minute episode. So for those who you know are really interested in that, because as Asho said, it's one of the best models, we've, probably the best model we've come across when it comes to habit design. Can you start by telling us a little bit, of, a bit of a background on that and yeah. also a bit about the research that sits behind that? Yeah, so I'll try to go quick and you can stop me or have me drill down further. So the pieces of what I call the fog behavior model came together in 2007. But before that, I actually believed the existing academic work about in order to change a behavior, like you give people information and that then changes their attitude, which in turn changes their behavior. I believe that. I believe that because that's kind of what you're indoctrinated to believe um, as a graduate student studying uh, psychology and social science and things like that. It turns out that that I rejected that at a certain point. It wasn't deliberately like I'm going to reject the whole tradition and start over. And it wasn't quite that. But I, I was doing a project for LinkedIn and LinkedIn was tiny. It was very, very small. And Reid Hoffman, the founder, had done a favor for me. So I was like, oh, I'm going to return the favor and do this project. And I won't go into the details of that. But in pulling together the pieces for him, I realized I needed to strip attitudes out of the slides that I was sharing with him. And once I took attitude change out, I was like, oh my gosh, only behavior change. That's what matters. LinkedIn doesn't really have to design for attitude change. They have to design for behavior change. So that for me was this moment of, oh my gosh, in my own work and in my own research, why am I fussing around with trying to change attitudes and opinions? Let's just focus only on behavior. And so I started obsessing about behavior. And the pieces came together little by little, but it all snapped together for me in 2007, where behavior is, or behavior happens when, three things come together. There's motivation to do the behavior, there's ability to do the behavior, and there's a prompt. And when those three things come together, the behavior happens. When you're missing one, it does not. And that, the, the simplicity and elegance of that, I just looked at and I just, I thought, really? Can it be this simple? 
can it be this straightforward? And the answer turns out to be yes. And what it did was it got me to stop being distracted by the ideas of you have to change attitudes and beliefs and opinions in order to change behavior and just look right at behavior and then develop other models of behavior and then methods around behavior change where you focus just on the behavior. So if, if I'm drawing this out, I went from kind of this triangle where you have three sides you got to worry about. The person, their attitude, the attitude and the behavior, the behavior and the person. So there's three things and there's theories and models about all three things to just having one thing to worry about, which is the person and the behavior. And once I was able to hone in on focusing on that, then all of these doors opened for me and insights. And it was like, oh my gosh. So it's, it's sort of, the behavior model is like a riddle that hadn't been solved before. But once you see the answer, it's like, of course, that's how it works. There it is. And it seems easy once you see the answer. <laughs> I love it. And it is like, it is, as you say, simple, uh, elegant, beautiful. It's just those three things, motivation, ability, and prompt. So uh, if you, I, f- I feel like that's, you can look at anything through that lens. You can look at uh, any behavior that you do or you don't do and work out why did you do it or why didn't you do it. Yeah, and if you want to get into the more theoretical components of the behavior model, um, one of the things, especially when you look at the graphical version with the curve, the curved line that I call the action line, what you see is the more motivated a person is to do a behavior, the more likely they are to do it. Bam. There's tons of studies that affirm that, you know, that suggests mm-hmm. the more motivated you are, the more likely. And so that's as you go up on the behavior model, there's more area over the curve. Number two, the harder a behavior is, the less likely somebody is to do it. So that's going from right to left, but it's the same curve. And so as you go and the behavior is harder to do, there's less area over the curve. In other words, less probability that somebody would do it. And then the third um, assertion is no behavior happens without a prompt. And there's t- lots of research that affirms that as well. So those three propositions are all packaged into this model that looks really simple and takes two minutes to explain behavior model 101. Yeah. And one of the powerful metaphors you used in the book was like the motivation's a bit like your mate who's good for your party <laughs> on the dance floor, whipping out some dance moves, but then picking up at the airport absolutely no good. So we can't really rely on motivation or optimize it for as much as we can ability. So can you tell us a little bit about the ability chain um, and how we might look at that to to improve the chances at installing habits? Yeah. Let me mention motivation just a bit. Yeah. So some people think I don't believe in motivation. I do. But you pick the new habit based on what you're motivated to do. You pick new behaviors and habits, pick what you want to do. So motivation comes in not at the end, but at the very start. And this notion that motivation goes up and down over time, that it fluctuates, had not been studied academically. I mean, in social science, so many things like credibility, decades and decades ago had been studied and refined and so on. But it wasn't until about 15 years ago that that's the first study I can find that talked about motivation as this thing that fluctuates. That's really, really recent in academic terms. And so that had never been named, that concept, you know, dynamics or fluctuation of motivation. So uh, I, along with some colleagues, we named it the motivation wave, and it will go up and down. You don't have tons of control over it. But like you said, what we do have control over is making something easier to do. And so I have a model for that. And think of it like a chain. 
and there's five links in the chain. And if any link is weak, then it's no longer easy to do. So for a given behavior in a given context, how much time does it take the person to do it? So let's say uh, somebody's going to take their vitamins every morning. How much time does it take to take the vitamins? Um, how much money is it required? If they're really expensive vitamins, then it's no longer easy to do. How much thinking does it take? Like if a person has to think, oh, I'm taking this one and this one, and do I take that one? And if they have to like tap into cognitive resources, then it's no longer easy to do. That could be a weak link. How much physical effort? So let's say they have to open every little vitamin bottle and, and so on. So physical effort is one of the links in the chain. And then the final link uh, is routine. How well does this fit into somebody's existing routine or do they have to break their routine? So when you're looking at how hard a behavior is, it's for the, uh, that person in that context doing the behavior and you say, which of these links in the chain is the weakest? And that's the one that you shore up. So let's say it's the physical effort. Like, okay, I have 12 bottles of vitamins and I got to open them and all that. The way that you would make that link of physical effort stronger is by pre-sorting the vitamins. Let's say once a week, you pre-sort the vitamins. They're all right there. You don't have to open all these bottles. It's just, there it is. So then you take a weak link and you make it strong. Okay, so that's uh, motivation and ability. Then the final element is that prompt. And uh, <laughs> we need we must have that prompt. Uh, and so yes. prompts, I guess, can, can come from all sorts of places. I, I guess for me, the, the first thing before reading this book, I thought, okay, maybe if I just like set uh, you know, 12 different alarms on my phone for different things that I want to do throughout the day, that's one way to do it. But I think you've got a, uh, some better ways of doing that. What's a, what's a better, better way, way of having prompts? Yeah. So in the first version of my behavior model, I called it trigger, but I changed it to prompt. Other people have used my work. They still call it trigger. And you can't go back to their books and republish them. But <laughs> prompts can come from one of three places. One is from the person, him or herself. You simply just remember. I'm just going to remember to take my vitamins. I'm going to remember to call my mom and so on. That's not very good to design. Just have somebody just remember. But it happens, right? Um, next, you can have something in your context prompt you. And that is, that's all around us. It's like the alarms, like you just said. It's post-it notes. It's pop-up notifications. It's people. Anything in your context that reminds you to do stuff. Uh, I'm standing at my stand-up desk, and I have a cup of coffee. The fact that the coffee is sitting here on the desk serves as a prompt. It says, drink me if it's sitting there. If I couldn't see the cup, coffee, then it wouldn't be a context prompt. I would have to rely on the person prompt, like, oh my gosh, I want coffee. Where's coffee kind of thing? The third source of prompt, and this is the tiny habits hack, is you find a routine or a behavior you already do, and you have that be the reminder to do the new habit. This is what we do in tiny habits, and this was a big breakthrough for me in creating the method. And I call it anchoring. Other people have taken the concept and they call it piggybacking or stacking. That's a new name for <laughs> what I discovered and called anchoring. And that's uh, like peeing for me. Well, I'll pick an easy one. <laughs> Brushing your teeth can be the prompt or the reminder to floss. Um, for me, putting my breakfast plate by the sink is my prompt to get out my vitamins. I've just associated that in my head. Um, for me, and this is, I've gone public with this, peeing or urinating 
are using the bathroom, however polite we want it to be. <laughs> Take, taking taking a slash. Saying, and it is, yes, is the prompt to do push-ups. So after I pee, I do two push-ups when I'm at home. So that is the most elegant way to design prompts into your life, prompts for habits, but it also requires the most skill. But in tiny habits, that's what we do. You, we, you learn to find what routine do I already do that I can anchor my new habit to, like tie it to. And that's why I picked the word anchor. You're attaching it to something firm and solid. And then if you pick wisely, the new habit just slots right into your life. And one thing just leads to another naturally. Mm, I love it. So that's like the anchor. So you get your first, uh, the, the routine, the thing you're already doing, then you do your new behavior. And then so yeah. it's A, B, and then C is the celebration. So that's what really makes it stick in. And that's what I'd love you to, to talk more about. We probably didn't go hard enough on it, but that celebration is what can really make it stick. Yeah, how far do we want to go with this? I have a whole chapter in Tiny Habits yeah, on it. Let's go there's far. more. There's way more. Whew, I'll start here. <laughs> Everybody, the headlines, the stuff you've read about repetition, creating habits, that is not right. That is wrong. <laughs> You're either being misled purposely or not purposely. But just look at the research that is most often cited for that. And I'll just give you, look up Lally, L-A-L-L-Y, 2009, Look carefully at that work. It does not say that repetition creates habits, whether it's 21 days or 66 days or whatever. It says it correlates. Repetition correlates with habit, self-reported habit strength. That's not causality, okay? So if people that say repetition creates habits, they either didn't read the study or they didn't understand it, or they're just repeating old wives' tales. That's how I look at it. And it's a real problem that if people think that repetition creates habits because they're focused on the wrong thing and there's other problems, but th what does cause us to do things more automatically are emotions. When you do a behavior and you associate a positive emotion with doing that behavior, it becomes more automatic. And that is a dramatic shift in traditional wisdom about habits is that emotions create habits. It's not repetition. Yeah, And we see this all around us and every day, you know, you, you buy a new product. Um, I'll pick one that I bought recently. There's this kind of um, headset that I just bought. Uh, and I won't mention the brand name, but it doesn't go in your ears. It goes around your ears and it uses bone conductance. And the first time I use it, I put it on and I was like, oh my gosh, the sound quality is really great. And I can still hear what's going on around me. And I felt like it gave me superpowers. It, felt me, it helped me feel successful. And once that happened, my, I started reaching for that headset mm. more than my earpods. And then eventually, my earpods, I haven't used them in a while because I just use this headset. So the habit then became very quickly, not 21 days, not 66 days, very quickly just reach for them. And I bought a red version and I called them my bat phone. This is like not important conceptually, but <laughs> my bat phone, because they're red, like in Batman, it's red. It's like, I'm going to put on my bat phone. And I love them. They, they like give me superpowers. So if you use a product or service and you feel like it helps you be successful, even to the extent of giving you a superpower, then that use of that product or service will become more and more automatic. And if it's really great, it's like one and done. You do it once and you never consider another option. Yeah, absolutely love it. And it's the best part about it being it is much simpler than 
slaving it away at 66 days. And then for a lot of people, they'll get to 66 and it's Didn't see work. you later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the other, uh, we can go on on this, but yep. if people believe, unfortunately, if they believe that it takes 66 days to create a habit and they're feeling stressed or tired or just tapped out, then they're going to go, oh, I just can't do this right now. In other words, they procrastinate or they never attempt the change. So it's not trivial to tell people, just repeat it 66 days, it'll become habit or that repetition creates the habit. You are, you're causing that person not to become a better version of herself or himself because mm -hmm. it seems daunting. Oh my gosh, I have to do this for 66 days. Oh, I'm not going to do it. So when it comes to behavior change, we have ethical responsibility, I believe, to tell the truth and to be accurate and not just sloppily summarize things or say something in a clever way that's not true um, because it affects people's health and happiness. And it's a big deal. That, and so I, <laughs> I'm not quite sure for, on this and other things what my ethical responsibility is to set the record straight. Uh, I'm really about saying, here's what works. And I'm really not about like, oh, here's all the things that are a problem. I'm like the solutions person, not the curmudgeon that's pointing out all the problems. But part of me goes, wow, people need to know the truth. Mm -hmm. So I have vented a little bit on that now. Uh, <laughs> Done. <laughs> I totally agree with you. As we were saying at the start, like habits being one of the most important things people can have in their life. And if they've got good habits, they're halfway on their way to, the, to yeah. their goals. So, so on this um, thing of celebration, so let's say someone in the morning, they want to work out. So for you with the headphones, it's kind of inbuilt. It's just such a good product. You've got it inbuilt in when you start using it. How can we engineer these celebrations into just our mundane day-to-day -day stuff? Well, in the tiny habits method, you self-reinforce by celebrating. So you don't leave it to chance. Uh, so if you wire, want to wire in push-ups as a habit, after you do, do push-ups, do something that causes you to feel successful. And I've listed over 100 options in the book, Tiny Habits, and there's a lot more. Some people will just go, good for me. And some people do a fist pump and some will do it uh, like a happy dance. For some, all you need to do is think, how does, just vividly think about how you're achieving a very important purpose by doing the push-ups. And I don't mean a purpose of, you know, building muscles, like a higher purpose, like something that really matters to you. So if you could connect that habit with a higher purpose, uh, like your life's purpose and see the connection, then you're feeling successful. And, and that, tiny habits, that's what, that's what celebration is. It's specifically help yourself feel successful. And there's different ways to hack it. And some people, it's straightforward. They can just do a fist pump or say, good for me. And some people need to connect it uh, with a higher purpose. Um, and there's a whole range in between. But part of the skill, a very important skill uh, to have to form habits quickly is the ability to feel successful on demand. And that's what celebration is. And yes, it's a skill, so people may not be great at it at the beginning. Some people are very good at this to start with, but just like any skill, some will be great, some won't. There's a whole bunch in between. You can get better by practice. So, so far, we've been talking about how do individuals uh, create their own behavior, um, but it's also like these theories and stuff can be used to 
for others to you know create create behavior in others. So I know you're very you're, you're briefly featured in the the social dilemma uh, Netflix documentary uh, about how some of your your students have been using these models to create behaviors in other people. Um, so it can I guess it's a bit of a double edged sword. You can use it for good or you can use it for evil. Yeah, I I'm very mixed on the social dilemma. I certainly agree with the overall aims of the film. However, the implications about me are not true. The clip they use of me, they don't use my name, but they use my lab's name. They, if you look up that clip, that's me in 2011 giving a keynote to health professionals. With no, it's a health conference, and I'm saying, <laughs> I'm going to help you become geniuses. But it's, it's used deceptively in the social dilemma that's me teaching students about social media. What? <laughs> Go to YouTube, search Fog GSB. You will find it. It's at the very beginning. It's clearly labeled that I'm teaching health professionals how to help people create habits. <sighs> and then the other things like the, the scroll and the like button, that has nothing to do with me. So the, my contribution to that <laughs> kind of thing has been vastly overstated and frankly deceptive. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I, I do think the issue is an important one. I wrote about it in Persuasive Technology in 2002 in my book. I talked about it in 2006. I gave a formal testimony to the FTC of the United States saying, here are three problems coming down the pipeline related to 2006. Wow. And one of those was uh, companies will be capturing what persuades us and then use it in these various ways against us. Oh, and by the way, elections, I talk about that. That was 10 years before Cambridge wow. Analytica. And then also the, one of the other things I called out, I didn't have a, a name for it, but I said, these videos will be manipulated. And now we call them deep fakes. Deep fakes. But I said, this is coming, people. And it has, both of those. The third one was about gaming and the influential aspects of that. So I have long been on the side, not of promoting it or creating it or training people to use this in bad ways, but I've been on the side of calling out the problems. So it's unfair. I feel like, yes, my work is powerful and the behavior model is powerful, but I've always taught it and framed it like, let's use this for mm -hmm. good. Let's use it for health habits. I had taught a class on world peace. You know, after the Facebook class I taught where it was like, we were understanding what could happen in this new uh, Facebook app landscape. Immediately after that class, I was like, oh my gosh, we just figured out this is powerful. Now let's use it for world peace. That was my next class at Stanford. It's like, let's apply influence through social networks to achieve world peace, which then led to a project and eventually a lab and now a headquarters uh, in The Hague on the topic. That's incredible. So, uh, so <laughs> don't believe the headlines. Don't believe everything you see or read. If you drill down further, um, yeah, but I guess somehow people and journalists needed somebody to be the, the, you know, the black hat on this. And sometimes they've chosen me to be that, which is not true. Uh, and that hurts because, um, because it does. <laughs> it's not fair. Yeah. Well, it is, a, it is a powerful tool and, you know, it needs to be used for, for good, which is the whole, you know, the whole thing you're promoting and what you're doing in Tiny Habits, which is fantastic. And through it, we can also understand how to break bad habits, uh, which we might need to fight fire with fire, um, you know, in, in the case of social media. So yeah. how would we look at breaking habits? 
So in the behavior model, motivation ability prompt, you can stop any behavior by getting rid of motivation or by getting rid of ability, making it really hard to do, or by removing the prompt. If it comes to something like, oh, you're on Facebook too much on your phone, guess what? You're probably not going to be able to reduce your motivation to do that. Okay, so probably skip over that. Ability, can you make it harder to do? Sure. Remove the app from your phone. Make your password really hard. Delete your account. Um, uh, when it comes, you may not want to be that extreme. You may want to start with prompts and say, you know, I'm just going to turn off notifications. I'm just going to reduce the prompts. So in my work, it's always about a system. How do you systematically design for behavior change? And in this case, I would start with prompts. And if that doesn't give you the results you want, then go to ability. And if that doesn't give you the results you want, then you're stuck with motivation. But guess what? Something like social media, we want to connect with each other. We want to look good to other people. I mean, make no mistakes. That's what Instagram is mostly about. It didn't start there, but that's what it's about is looking good. And we want to stay updated on what people are doing. It's very hard to rewire who we are as human beings and not desire those social things. So in this case, you would start with prompts and then ability. And then if the motivation piece, if you get to that, and you would then find a, you would swap in a different behavior. But notice you don't start with swapping. And I have a three phase, as you saw, carefully outlined flowchart in the appendices, those three phases. Swapping is the last thing you try, not the first thing. It's on, you only do that if the other attempts to uh, stop a bad habit didn't work. I've got one uh, slightly, I guess, nerdy, maybe a bit of a meta question almost. That like, so yes, it's, it's, I love, <laughs> and I hope it's hard. I love hard, nerdy questions. <laughs> I guess it's like, so the, there's one big part is, is information. Okay, so you've got all the, the information of here's, like, or here's the research, here's the studies, um, this is everything you need to know. But then the, the, the next layer of that is how do you actually get people to use it? And so I think to, to answer my own question a little bit, is it like you had different stories and different examples showing yeah. here's real people who have done it, plus then you had exercises um, in each chapter. I guess, how, do you go, how did you go about thinking? Like you've got this physical standalone book uh, full of information. How do you then transfer that yeah. to actually take action? <gasps> what a good question. Um, the book is called Tiny Habits, but it's really a book about what I call behavior design. So behavior design, as we defined it at Stanford in 2011, so my lab was no longer doing persuasive technology. We're like, we're done with that. We're not interested. So then we started doing this new thing, and we called it behavior design, not behavioral design. That's come later with other people using that phrase, behavior design. And it's a new set of models and methods. And the opportunity in tiny habits to do more than just the tiny habits method was so tempting. And my editors allowed it that it's really a book about behavior design, which is a broad system of understanding any human behavior and designing for any human behavior, not just habits, it could be one-time behaviors and stopping habits and so on. And so in, <laughs> in doing that, the book was just way too long. So we had to trim a lot of stuff to get it to be 300 pages. And even so, it's very there's a lot to it yeah, and time. probably too much, you know, and if and it were just about the tiny habits method, if it was just, if people only want to just learn the tiny habits method, 
I have a free five-day program for that. It's free. And you invest 45 minutes total through the week and you will learn like Tiny Habits 101 and you'll learn how to do the method. And I've offered that since 2011. And some of the people you mentioned took my courses, that five-day course early on. And that's the simple way to learn it. But if you really want to understand human behavior, any type of human behavior, that's what Tiny Habits, my book, is about. Um, it would have been more appropriately titled like, you know, Welcome to Behavior Design or something like that. Uh, but one of the methods and the leading method in the book is Tiny Habits. And um, so I decided to call it Tiny Habits, but it really is behavior design. Phenomenal. So we might, uh, as we're approaching to the end now, as we, as we said at the start, we're a book that goes, well, <laughs> we're a podcast that goes through the best books. Um, I'm sure you're a massive reader, BJ. Have you got any recommendations for us? And we'll just go with yeah. the assumption that, you know, the listeners are like us in that curious and looking to just have a good, you know, a good life. Oh my gosh, there's so many. But one that has influenced me a lot uh, is the book, The One Thing. Just because, because I'm a huge optimist and I have lots of energy and I want to have big positive impact in the world. So I say yes to all this stuff like, oh, I can do this and this and this. Like I'm leading two research labs right now and seven <laughs> research projects. That's after <laughs> like filtering out stuff. So that book and the guidance there really helped me say, what is my one thing and what am I about? Yeah, I really like that because I feel like it fits really well with the idea of the swarm of behaviors, mm -hmm. brainstorm all the possible things you can do. And a lot of people might find there is the one thing that's the simplest to do, got most leverage and in terms of habit and health and everything like that, um, doing just one thing is going to have a huge impact. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's... Um you know, I really only read nonfiction. Uh, I'm trying to read more fiction and stuff, but I just get, I'm just, I feel like I'm here on this planet. I don't know how to, so I grew up Mormon. I'm no longer an active Mormon, but I still see that I have a life's purpose. I don't know how to explain it from a scientific perspective, but I'm not just here to pass the days. I'm here to have positive impact in the world. And so, yes, I need to relax. And yes, I need to take breaks. And yeah, I can have fun, but I feel like I'm here to learn and then apply that and discover things that will help people be happier and healthier. So there's just this, this ongoing drive yeah. to uh, become more effective in that way, learn more, discover more, and then get really good at teaching it and helping people apply it. That's what my life's about. Yeah, and appreciate that. And there's obviously th oh, a lot, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who've been already influenced by your work. And you're right. Like we've only got two and a half thousand books over our lifetime we could possibly <laughs> read. So we might as well be choosing the best ones if we want to be having a good impact on the world. Yeah, it's 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 the hardest thing for me, and probably for everybody listening to this, is prioritizing. And so I have a way I do that every morning, every week. Uh, and then sometimes multiple times during the day um, because we all have more demands and more opportunities than we have time for. And so just getting really good at prioritizing and trying not, trying not to feel 
the pain of saying no to stuff. I still feel that, I admit. But I just know that I have to just be really tough. And I described it to my students like prioritize until it hurts. You know, and but that's what you got to do. One way I explain it to my students, and this is about having a focus and prioritization. It's like, if you're trying to knock down this wall and you took a very blunt instrument like a pillow, you could slam it and slam it against the wall. You'd make any progress. But if you take a very focused thing like a pickaxe with a very, very sharp tip, boom, same amount of force, you make way more progress. And I think that analogy helps my students who are also ambitious and optimistic go, oh, yeah, so I have to prioritize. I have to focus in order to make progress. Nice. So even though you, you've, you've prioritized a lot, you still said you've got a, a hell of a lot going on, a hell of a lot on your plate. What are you working on the moment? What are the next, <laughs> what are the next projects? Um, well, I'll start with my Stanford lab. We are continuing our work on screen time screentime.stanford.edu. We've collected the largest database of ways to help people have appropriate relationships with their screen. And we have a little wizard genie that guides you that's based on an algorithm. Um, We just finished phase one of a vaccination project where we use the behavior model to help people, professionals see in a new way of what is this challenge of vaccination? How do we optimize that? We are designing a curriculum. We run two pilot tests of training climate change professionals how to influence behavior to save the planet. And uh, a new project uh, about upregulating positive emotions. So one project is about screen time. One project is about saving the planet. One project is about (laughs) vaccination pandemic. (laughs) So all of my classes every year, and the classes feed into the lab. I pick like the hardest, most important problem that has a behavior component and that becomes my class for the year. And that often spins into a research project in my lab. Um, Oh, the other project I'm working on with School of Medicine is how to help older adults with depression uh, not be so depressed. And so my lab isn't in charge of that, but that's a couple, myself and another lab member involved And that's really important because now most older adults, at least in the U.S., are depressed. And we're getting great results on that. Now, I want to just launch that and get in the world right away. I won't be into the world till next year sometime, unfortunately, because we need to further validate it. But yeah, you know, if you can, it's such... And then there's a whole bunch of little side projects like I surf and I play instruments every day. But from a research perspective and breaking new ground, those are the projects, at least at Stanford, I'm doing. And Tiny Habits, I have a Tiny Habits Research Lab and we're doing uh, another set of projects that I think are really important as well. That's a, that sounds phenomenal. That's a, that's a heavy load and a whole bunch of really important things there, that's for sure. Um, so if, if people are, are curious to find out a little bit more about everything BJ Fogg, is, uh, where, where should we direct them? BJFogg.com has sort of the broadest summary of what I'm doing. It's not that great a website, but it's okay. And then for tiny habits, the tiny habits method itself, tinyhabits.com is the best place to go. And if you just want to keep up with me, sort of like when I sort of binge tweet, like, and I often will tweet new brand new stuff. Like I'm thinking about this or here's this new thing. So I'm, I'm BJ Fogg on every social platform, including Twitter. Fantastic. BJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're glad that we made it through the, uh, the filter of prioritization and became one of those few things that, that you, uh, you allowed us to do. It was uh, so great to read your book, so great to learn more from you. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.